welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. We're going to begin a new series today, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and as you find that and put your bookmark there, I want to draw attention as the children were singing, uh, some may be wondering where does that originate from, that's from our kids club on Wednesday nights, we meet at 7 here, Uh, we have kids club for ages 3 to 11, also youth group 12 to 18, and the adults also have a separate study, so we call it family night. There's something for the whole family, and you'll probably notice on the back of your bulletin that we have a a theological question and answer and a memory verse for each week. And uh, the question for this week is, how can we glorify God? And I think that's being answered today with just the wonderful singing. We glorify God by enjoying Him, loving Him, trusting Him, and by obeying His will, commands, and law. So uh, if you're interested in a midweek, we've got, uh, we've got a good one here at 7 p.m. on Wednesdays. Well, as we turn to 1 Thessalonians and uh, chapter 1, this is an exciting day. It is an exciting today um, as we begin a new sermon series. I have been able to <clears throat> experience this a few times, had the privilege of doing this a number of times, and each book of the Bible that we have started has more than delivered. Without fail, it delivers far more than what I initially expect. And I don't want to overpromise on day one, but I do believe we are going to enjoy a, a season of discovery in First and Second Thessalonians, uh, theological discovery in these epistles, that is going to astonish us. I truly do. As I read to you earlier from Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul first visited Thessalonica along with Silas during his second missionary journey. That was about the year 50 AD, where they experienced considerable success in that city. Several Jews We are told a large number of God-fearing Greeks joined them. And even a group of leading or distinguished women, they were persuaded by the word of God to join Paul and Silas. But soon a a band of unbelieving Jews from the synagogue, uh, they arose and stirred up an angry mob of, of evil men to attack Paul and Silas. And these newly born-again Christians, whom the Jews have decided, they must have decided they stole attendees from our synagogue. Acts 17 verse 5 indicated that their motive was jealousy. Their synagogue was losing people. Thereby, they were losing influence over those people. Thereby, they were losing influence over those people's money. And during the mob attack, several 
new converts to Christianity, including one of them named Jason. They were dragged before the city officials and accused of sedition by proclaiming that there is another king besides Caesar, namely Jesus. And the charge against Paul and Silas was this. These men are turning the whole world upside down. Those mobs could not find Paul and Silas, but they found the others. And what amounts to, after what amounts to posting bail bond, Jason and the others were released from custody, who then returned to Paul and Silas, sending them away by cover of darkness to a nearby city of Berea. So the teaching by Paul wasn't received well by the majority of Jews in Thessalonica, though a few Jews surely did believe. By comparison, we are told that the Jews in nearby Berea, at the synagogue in Berea, those Jews were referred to as more noble-minded. That's because they received the word with with great eagerness, examining everything that Paul and Silas had taught them to see if it is so with the Scriptures. It's very important that we're always examining what we're taught. Talked a little bit about that this morning in our adult Bible class that meets at 9.15. Use discernment. Don't immediately accept everything that you're told. All right? That's what the Jews in the synagogue a believer did, uh, uh, in Berea did. We are told there in Acts chapter 17 and verse 12, in Berea, many of them, referring again to the Jews in the synagogue, many of them believed, along with, once again, a number of prominent women and men who were Greek. So we can discern that early on in the continent of Europe, Early on, the church consisted of both believing Jews and believing Gentiles. They both respond to the same gospel message. Of course, Romans 10 verse 12 assures us of what? Well, it assures us that for God, again, Romans 10 verse 12, for God, there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on Him, for whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. A very prominent passage that we memorize early on in our Christian life. There has only ever been one church. One church that consists of both Jews and Gentiles believing the same gospel message and who according to Ephesians chapter 12 and verse 15, Christ has, we are told, made the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, that he might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross. You know, Jewish sectarianism or separatism uh, was the reason the, that the Apostle Peter was so sternly rebuked 
in the church of Antioch, uh, Galatians chapter 2, after Peter had withdrawn to eat with the Hebrews. Peter had withdrawn to a faction, a Jewish faction in Antioch. Division again was the reason Paul continues writing in Galatians chapter 3, the next chapter. He says, You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus, and you were all baptized into Christ. And therefore, he says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. And there is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. He then states that if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. So as we begin this this study, our observation of the background of the church in Thessalonica, I would challenge the popular but erroneous Zionist view, the Zionist belief, that Jews maintain a separate path of reconciliation to God that that circumvents Jesus and and circumvents the cross and, and circumvents the church. Since Christ's sacrifice for sins on the cross, and precisely as declared in Acts chapter 15 and 11 uh, by the Jerusalem council, the rendering there heard from Peter and from James, we, we also see in Antioch and Thessalonica and Berea that the believing remnant of Jews has since Calvary always been included in Christ's church. The Jewish and Gentile Christians have from the beginning suffered, in some cases suffered immensely, enduring persecution as one body of Christ together. Therefore, I would hope you would agree when I state that I'm not particularly fond, I'm not particularly tolerant of any ideology that wants to divide up Christ's church by ethnicity or race. Not in the past, not in the present, not in the future. We are all one in Christ Jesus. The word of God establishes that there is division only between two different people groups. Only two different people groups. Believers and unbelievers. Believers in Christ and unbelievers who reject the truth that is given to them. In Thessalonica, the introduction to the gospel of Jesus Christ, their introduction to Jesus brought with it an introduction to persecution for all who trust in Jesus. Folks, this church was established amongst much tribulation, endured much affliction, and yet we are going to discover it was doing pretty well. It was doing very well. Paul and Silas had been run out of Thessalonica, Later, Paul was also a run out of Berea. 
And it is commonly agreed that he wrote this first epistle to the Thessalonians a few months later from the city of Corinth. So what we will read is Paul's response. What I'm going to read to you at the beginning of 1 Thessalonians is Paul's response to a healthy report of a healthy church. And this report had been delivered to him by Timothy. Now with that just little bit of of background to how the church was formed, I want to read the opening seven verses of 1 Thessalonians and chapter 1. Uh, It's probably going to take us a couple more, maybe three more weeks to get through just this opening passage. There is so much here. But today I want to provide just a little background to how the gospel came to Thessalonica and a little overview of the content of these two letters, 1 and 2 Thessalonians. And this opening greeting comes from the Apostle Paul. He includes Silas, who was also known to them as Silvanus. And of course, we know Timothy. So in verse 1, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, His choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Boy, Paul just expresses he is overjoyed. He is overjoyed after hearing of the perseverance of these saints in Thessalonica. This is because, folks, that the true litmus test for a church, the true litmus test for a church is not that it enjoys prosperity, but that it endures and holds fast, faithful to the Word of God through times of adversity. That's what gives Paul such such joy. And he is writing them to encourage them to remain faithful, remain true, persevere through affliction that is chronicled through both of these letters, both of these epistles. Boy, what a, what a steep contrast to what we see in the church of Corinth. What a contrast between a church of the Corinthians that was foundering and, and floundering and was not forced to endure severe affliction 
as it was experienced in Thessalonica. Corinth, a church that was birthed in relative prosperity, had experienced much division in their church. They, they began rival baptisms. We aren't given specificity to what that involved, but it is possible that the Jews in Corinth were being baptized in the name of Cephas. That is a Hebrew name. While the Gentiles were being baptized in the name of Apollos, that is a Greek name. They were bringing lawsuits against one another. They were even celebrating, celebrating the Lord's Supper in factions. Divided. People being left out. To Corinth, Paul was forced to declare this. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made of one spirit to drink. Meanwhile, that church in Thessalonica that had suffered such affliction and tribulation, they had become imitators of Paul and Silas and Christ our Lord through, verse 5 says, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. As a result, they had become an example to all the other churches in Macedonia and Achaia. To all other believers, they had become uh, an example. In fact, when we get to chapter 3 of 1 Thessalonians, we're going to discover that even through all of their trials, all of their afflictions, Paul writes this, Your faith abounds in love toward one another. about that for just just one second in which church would you rather be a member one that is so so wealthy and so worldly that the members get busy hiring civil lawyers to to defraud one another or a church needing to hire defense lawyers to post bond and get released from custody. Which would you rather be? Oh, don't lie. I know that no one wants to be dragged into court. But what kind of Christian sets out to sue their own brothers and sisters in Christ? Which church is healthier? Which is described as joy-filled? Which is unified? With which church is Paul more pleased when he fills out their report card? Let me ask it in another way. Which church the Corinthian church or the church in Thessalonica, which church needs to be commanded to love 
And which church is being commended for their love? It is the church experiencing persecution and affliction and tribulation that has become an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. I'm going to throw up just a quick map here to to give a bird's eye view of where we're at. If you were to look just to the left of that map, you would see Italy. So this is the Mediterranean. And in the top you see Philippi. That is where Paul landed after accepting the Macedonian call. He went into Philippi. Uh, first convert in, in, that, in that area was Lydia down by the river. And things looked like they were going pretty well until Paul and Silas got thrown into prison. But then again, that went pretty well because there was a Philippian jailer there who decided that he and his household would hear the gospel and believe in Jesus Christ as well. From there, he's dispatched to Thessalonica, that we've just read about his arrival there. And of course, things go pretty well until he's chased out due to persecution from Thessalonica, and he lands then in Berea. And after Berea, we know that he went to Athens and preached at Mars Hill. Then, of course, from there, the records indicate that he moved on to Corinth, there near the bottom. That, that bottom area is Achaia. The upper area in the other churches is Macedonia. And Paul lands in Corinth, where he probably writes this first epistle. Thessalonica had become a model, an example for all the churches in Macedonia and Achaia. Paul suffered affliction when he was in Thessalonica. It was nothing new for him. He knew that after he left, the church would need to continue to endure persecution, and and that is the purpose of his letter. You must endure. I think his purpose is pretty well summed up in chapter 3 of 1 Thessalonians where he writes this. He says, therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith, so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. For indeed, when we were with you, when they were with the church in Thessalonica, He said, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. And so it came to pass, as you know, for this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith for fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love, And that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us, just as we also long to see you. For this reason, brethren, in all of our distress and affliction, we are comforted about you through your faith. For now we really live if you stand firm 
in the Lord. Wow. A church that is persecuted thrives. With that background, I want to give just an overview of these two letters, First and Second Thessalonians, content of what we're going to look at. And I'll begin with just three major themes that are sown from beginning to end, beginning of First Thessalonians to the end of Second Thessalonians. The first is an ecclesiastical theme, that is, means a church theme. A theme of the assembly of the saints, of a healthy and vibrant church. Paul wrote to praise them as he was so pleased to hear that they were standing firm in the Lord amongst much affliction. It became his opportunity to remind them that that if you stand firm, you will persevere if you do not stand firm. You are not genuine Christians. We just read in chapter 3 and verse 5 that in such a case of falling away, Paul says, Our labor and you would have been in vain, would have been empty. Now, you and I, we don't have to experience affliction in order to prove that we're Christians, we don't have to seek out affliction. But if we do not persevere when afflicted, it establishes that we're not. The Bible Knowledge Commentary put out by Dallas Seminary states this as a fact. Quote, Paul was concerned that Satan might snatch away the seed that he had sown before it had a chance to put down stabilizing roots. The Lord's brother James wrote, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love them, love him. It's James 1 verse 12. So Paul wrote them this letter, which he refers to in chapter 2 as not the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God. To urge them to to hold fast to the Lord under distress and and affliction. Not to abandon the faith. not Not to fall away and apostatize. Thereby proving themselves to be false converts. This is one of the reasons that I chose to start this new series. It establishes and reminds us that we are not permitted to fall away and desert Christ when persecution comes. Folks, I truly wish, I do, I truly wish that if tribulation arises because of the Word of God, I wish that I could tell you that we can just rest on our blessed assurance and just close up shop and place of the church and all meet out at the golf course. But I cannot do that. The Word of God does not permit that. In Mark chapter 4, 
Jesus preached a parable about four types of soil upon which the seed of God's word had been sown, but only one type of soil, the good soil, yielded a crop. By contrast, Mark writes that the seed that was sown on the rocky places, when they hear the word, immediately they receive it with joy. Great, I'm saved. And they have no firm firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. Then when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. These who are rocky and fall away prove that they were never true Christians. Sobering. Sobering. It's not that they lose salvation. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. They were never the right soil for the word of God to take root. Therefore, when tribulation and affliction comes because of the word... Jesus said immediately they fall away. Folks, it it is becoming more urgent, more urgent that Christians in America recognize that our nation is quickly growing intolerant of Christ, intolerant of God's word, intolerant of Christians and Christ's church. And part of the reason that I, not the whole reason, but part of the reason I chose this series now at this time is because we need to strengthen our minds. We need to strengthen our minds before genuine religious persecution comes. Because it may be on the horizon. I don't want that. But we must be prepared beforehand. Uh, as I said moments ago, I wish that I could tell us that if, if persecution and, and danger arises, that you know, we, the churches can just all close up our doors and close our Bibles and you know, meet somewhere a little more comfortable. Maybe enjoy our Sundays somewhere nice and fluffy. Rest in our assurance of salvation that we believe we have. Maybe even like a Star Trek transporter, just go right out to the golf course. And just close it up and go elsewhere. Scripture does not permit that when persecution comes. It does not permit that. So we need to ask ourselves this theoretical question, right? It's a theoretical question that each can ask themselves. We must ask ourselves, when tribulation comes because of the word of God, where are you and I going to be? Are you going to endure persecution along with Jason and the others in Thessalonica when they're dragged off to court Or are you going to retreat to the tennis court or some other place that is more tolerable? Will you enjoy some 
other rocky endeavor that remains fruitless forever? Or are you going to hold fast and remain with the Word of God? Or maybe if your local church gets shuttered somehow or censored in some way, perhaps you could just start attending another church that promises the government that they won't discuss topics that the state deems too sensitive or too controversial. Is it possible to have a church that avoids all of the offensive language of Scripture and yet also earnestly contends for His Word? It's not possible. If that were possible, the apostles would have never been martyred. If that were possible, the early church would have never had to suffer through affliction and martyrdom. So Paul writes this letter to a church that has already contended for the word. And he urges them to continue contending for the word. One major theme then is ecclesiastical. How the church functions when persecution arises. Thankfully for Thessalonica, it functions well. We're going to see how they how they function. Second, the means of our, pers- uh, our perseverance through tribulation. The means of how we persevere through affliction, and that is the preaching of the word. The preaching of the word. Paul writes to Thessalonica to remind them the word must be preached. It's the means by which we are strengthened to endure. Jesus prayed to God the Father, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus. The preaching of the Word of God is our means of preservation. You ever fallen into a period of your life, you don't have to raise your hand, but where you've, you know, lost interest in church for a while, fallen away for a season, not read your Bible or ingested the Word of God, or heard the Word of God preached, How did that go for you? Did it make you strong? It's because you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit and brought back again, Russell. You cannot be strengthened for persecution apart from the Word of God and apart from the assembly of the saints. The Word then cannot be silenced, we will see. Far be it for me to comprehend how and why God has delegated these ministries of prayer and the preaching of the word to earthen vessels, to mere men, vessels of mercy, 
The only reason I can fathom why God would do such a thing is his loving desire to reward those who are diligent and faithful. Why else would you delegate such an important task to mere men? Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 12, But we, we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Well, I'm hoping to get some mileage out of that when we get to that chapter. But before that is chapter 2. And it's very practical instruction on the faithful ministry of Scripture. We must endure in the faithful ministry of Scripture. Folks, there has never been a better time to be involved in the ministry of the Word. Whether that is teaching two or three-year-olds in nursery, whether that is leading a group of youth, whether that is teaching a side study or personal devotions or leading a church, there has never been a better time to be in the ministry of the Word. In fact, there's never been a bad time to be in the ministry of the Word. So there is a warning against church apostasy of falling away, a reminder to this church that we are preserved through the word. And third, I will mention the most prominent theme of First and Second Thessalonians. This is what you've all been waiting for. That includes our inspiration to persevere through adversity. That is Christ's imminent return. By God's spirit, we can endure anything, anything, because both First and Second Thessalonians promise that our affliction will be relieved when Christ returns to gather together his elect who belong to him. That is the most prominent theme through both First and Second Thessalonians. Now I realize that there may be some who are really flourishing and, and thriving in this present world and doing quite well where they are and maybe they're believing they're living their best life now who may not be especially concerned about how quickly Christ returns. But I, I assure you that there are Christians in places of the world who are enduring tribulation, who are enduring persecution, that are desperately longing for the glorious return of Christ. Folks, we should be praying for them. We should be praying for a quick return of Christ for their behalf. We should be praying that rather than preserving our prosperity that Christ would come and relieve the suffering of Christians in other places of the globe. There's no 
There's nothing here that when Christ comes that we're going to wish we had held on to. All things are going to be made new. But there are brothers and sisters in Christ in many locations in the globe where these letters speak. These letters mean something when you're suffering. Christians throughout history have been tortured and martyred but they have received great hope and strength through reading these letters. It's very realistic to anticipate that it is possible, that it's possible that Christians in America will eventually join them. But I assure you that Christians are currently enduring tribulation in many parts of the world. North Korea, Burma, locations in the Middle East, Somalia, suffering great anguish for enduring for the word of God. I think it will greatly benefit us now. Well, things are pretty good. To study this now, that we would be prepared for a period of great tribulation if it falls upon our generation. If not for us, for our kids and our grandkids. There is quite a bit of, well, disagreement about these letters. There's quite a bit of disagreement in the West about the definition of tribulation and the great tribulation. There remains a spirited debate whether Christians will be raptured before the tribulation or after. Most Americans since the year about 1909, when the Schofield Reference Bible and its study notes were printed, uh, most Americans since that year have concluded that we Americans, we must be raptured before the tribulation. By comparison, most Christians in persecuted countries like North Korea and Somalia have concluded, well, it must be after tribulation. So during this series, we are going to finally settle this once and for all. No, obviously, I acknowledge there will probably remain some differences uh, of opinion on the tribulation and the rapture, the timing of it, the definition of tribulation, but that doesn't mean we should avoid talking about it. This is the Word of God. How can that be harmful? Spiritual unity is achieved through examining the Scriptures together. And the reason there, there so often exists animosity or resentment between differing opinions on eschatology, that is the, the study of the end times, when I use that term eschatology. The reason there often exists so much animosity between groups with different views is because, honestly, most people don't actually know why they believe what they believe about the imminent return of Christ. Most people just don't actually know why. 
they've only been told what to believe. Either by some person or, or some family member or some pastor whom they genuinely respect. But when they're asked to defend what they believe and how they find it in the Word of God and how they synthesize it in the books, they say, you know, I, I don't really know how to defend what I believe on those things. But one might say, but you know, my grandma or my dad has always assured me that we're either pre, mid, or post-trib. It's actually not knowing why you believe what you believe that results in camp entrenchment, all right? And, and resentment between differing views of, of the unfolding of the end times, as I said, referred to eschatology. But you know what? You don't find that same resentment prevalent among people we respect, like John MacArthur, Wayne Grudem, Alistair Begg, Vody Bauckham, the late R.C. Sproul, men who will share a common platform at a conference and embrace one another as brothers in Christ. And you know how they can do that? It's because they understand what the other individual believes. They know, they comprehend why there are other positions held by people who they politely disagree with. Therefore, you will find that Alistair Begg and John MacArthur remain friends. You follow me? They understand one another because they know how they get there. We need to know how we get there as well. If you've been here for a little while, um, I enjoy and respect John MacArthur uh, to death. What a wonderful preacher. What an amazing man of God who has been faithful to the word of God for decades. But I have come out clearly. I am a post-trib rapture guy. I am post-trib. Uh, the timing of the rapture is not essential to salvation. I know what John MacArthur believes, and I know how he gets there. I understand how he arrives at his conclusions. He is not a false teacher. He is not a heretic. But this is a topic where I humbly disagree with him. On the timing of the rapture and the definition of the tribulation, I more closely align with the view of Wayne Grudem, who is also not a false teacher who is also not a heretic. And I believe if you give me an open ear during this series, you'll understand why. A few of you may join me. A few may not. But let's not simply hold a theological position because somebody else has told us what to believe. Some pastor, somebody, or some study Bible that we've referenced Let's look honestly at Scripture together. I honestly believe, I truly believe that this series is going to increase the unity of this fellowship. I truly do. And when we are finished, 
even if we still disagree, at least you will know exactly why the elders of this church and myself believe that Christ's church will be raptured after the tribulation, the day of the Lord, the day when Christ returns. I think you'll at least understand why. And you can say, I know how they get there. I don't agree, perhaps, but I know how they get there. There are a few requests I, I'm going to make as, just as we close and, and as we begin this series. I, I'm really excited about this series. These, these two epistles are loaded. I think, I think that's why you probably don't see them preach that much. They're loaded. Number one, don't skip church. Don't skip church. If you want to have this discussion, don't skip church. If you miss for vacation or, or you're sick or if you're in the nursery serving the church, catch up online on the Sunday that you miss. Please don't skip a bunch of Sundays and then jump back in mid-conversation and miss the entire context and the passages that we have been talking about. You've already missed out. Also, um, let's, let's exercise a little bit of integrity. This is the systematic theology of Wayne Grudem. It's an excellent resource. I also have John MacArthur's systematic theology, another excellent resource. I have them both. They're both very, very good. Um, let's exercise some integrity and embrace um, credible scholarship, folks. Credible scholarship. Um, these men, John MacArthur and Wayne Grudem, do not disagree on scholarship. All right? Uh, on topics such as the Hebrew and Greek language, they agree. On historic positions of the Christian church, what the church has believed from the very beginning, these men agree. They disagree on an interpretation of some facts in Scripture, but not on the scholarship. They both agree, for example, that the pre-trib rapture position was first popularized by an Englishman named John Nelson Darby, beginning around the year 1830 in London, and that his view, the, the Darby view of the pre-trib rapture, only became broadly circulated in the U.S. after being included in the Schofield Reference Bible. That started in 1909. That's just fact. Whether it's late or a later view, that doesn't make it right or wrong. Being later doesn't make it a wrong view, but when it comes to biblical scholarship, let's be honest. Let's be honest together. Um, some of what I share might challenge you. If you disagree with me, fine. Uh, but to defend your own view, please use some credible sources. Um, not a blog. Not a, not a Facebook post that links to a YouTube channel that nobody's ever heard of, who nobody knows 
what their name is or where they go to church, even if they go to church. Folks, some of these sources won't even tell you their name. Um, that's not scholarship. That's not scholarship. Search Google to find people who are credible. Who find people who are credible. Searching Google to simply find somebody, anybody, who will join in your position in a five-minute video, that is not credible scholarship. Hey, I found it. Someone else agrees with me. No, no, this is too important for that. And I truly believe that if we will be honest, we will agree that we're all going to understand one another and that this series is going to draw us closer together. Closer together. It is the Word of God. It can't return void. I'm going to propose during the series that the apostles did not write in Morse code, nor did they speak in the Navajo language, which was very useful in World War II, but it wouldn't have been useful in the Word of God. This topic, I'm going to be honest, it's really not that hard. And you're going to be amazed at how much you are going to understand and you will be able to articulate to people what you believe about the coming of Christ and why you believe it. That's what is important in this series. In the coming weeks and months, to wrap up here quickly, I'm going to frame a biblical understanding of the tribulation. We're going to soon after discuss the coming wrath of God. By the end of chapter 2, we are already going to begin to understand what is referred to in the Greek as the parousia, which is the Greek term for the second coming or second advent of Christ, the parousia. In chapter 3, Christ's second coming is going to be discussed again. And in chapter 4, we are going to discover on this day of Christ's coming, we along with every other Christian, when Christ comes, every other Christian who previously died will together be raptured into the clouds. In chapter 5, we will learn that this second coming of the Lord Jesus is also referred to as the day of the Lord, a day when God will bring sudden destruction upon evil men as he pours out his wrath on the inhabited earth. Don't worry. All credible sources believe that we will be raptured before the wrath comes. No matter which rapture timing, each agrees we will not have to face, we will not be destined for the wrath of God. We are saved through Christ Jesus. Then in 2 Thessalonians in chapter 1, because Paul's first letter was apparently distorted by some false teachings, Paul's going to write a second letter to provide clarification. So in chapter 2, we're going to be told that before Christ returns, we should expect a great apostasy of churches who fall away from the true faith because they're going to embrace a false teaching that is spawned covertly by a man of lawlessness. At that time also, I will take us back to the book of Daniel, especially chapter 9, where we'll gain a biblical discernment of the abomination of desolation. We're going to discover the maker of what is referred to as the strong covenant. And we're going to discuss the 70 weeks of Daniel. 
If you are a eschatology buff, you're going to love this. You're really going to love this. Very interesting stuff. Um, we're going to talk about the activity of the Antichrist, what the restraining influence over him is now, or at least at the time of the writing of this letter, Paul says, you know what restrains him now. Of course, that was 2,000 years ago. But in Paul's time, and though I do not know who this man of lawlessness currently is, if you will persevere through this series, at the end I will be able to show you when the identity of this Antichrist will be revealed. Finally, the final chapter of 2 Thessalonians in chapter 3 is going to urge the Christian church while it waits for Christ's return, which all credible scholars are awaiting Christ's return, we are to live a practical and godly life of love in his church. If you're not a fan of the study of the end times, uh, there's going to be a lot of very practical day-to-day discussion instruction contained within these chapters. There's going to be something in here for everybody. It is going to be a wonderful series. It's called the Day of the Lord.